Hello, welcome to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing career, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Our guest today will be illustrator and cartoonist Dave Milgram. But first, a review of The Power of Giving Away Power by Matthew Barzin, a guy who started campaign organizing for Barack Obama's first presidential campaign and then ultimately became ambassador to both Sweden and then the UK. I got to start out by saying I love this book. I got it from the library to read, and then I went out and bought it. I like it so much. It is short. It is super readable. And I found that it really changed, or maybe the word should be deepened, my understanding about a lot of things. Super enlightening. The central idea of the book has to do with these two ways of comprehending and making a construct in of our understanding of power. So the Lost Constellation is about the national seal of the United States. So making one when our country was first founded was a multi-committee, multi-designer, six-year project. And the brainstorming was all kinds of insane from Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, the rest of them. So the two concepts they ended up with were these two concepts that are really good metaphors for their power. One of them is top-down, authoritarian, which is illustrated by a pyramid, and that's on one side of our seal. And the other is shared power, symbolized by a constellation. And that idea was suggested by one of the less famous founders, a guy named Charles Thompson. And we see this constellation in all sorts of places, was on the early flags, for example, the 13 stars. But on the seal, they are kind of randomly placed just to show the organic nature of how the United States began, really, and began to decide to cooperate and become a federal republic, uh, the kind the kind of democracy that we have. All right, so he sees in these two concepts, pyramid versus constellation. It's not that either of these concepts are good or bad. It's that they're not always appropriate uses of power. So there's strength and duration. That's also sort of the pyramid side, top down versus independence and unity, and that is represented by this constellation of stars. The idea was that a country had to embrace this duality because there will be times, for example, in crisis where consolidated top-down power is more effective. But in fact, the constellation is the front of the seal that they cast in bronze in 1782, and they didn't even bother casting the back at all until 150 years later in the Depression when somebody in FDR's administration picked up an old book and thought, oh, that pyramid thing would be really useful right about now. And they rebranded the seal, using putting that back on it and then putting it on money. That's when the pyramid goes on money. And then it was also super useful for World War II. And then we kind of got stuck with it or addicted to it. And we've been dominated by this philosophy and this icon ever since. 
The pyramid is a freedom from. The constellation is freedom with. And then he has some interesting, neat little stories that use this kind of mindset, like the Encyclopedia Britannica, which then its big sort of upset was in its dominance of encyclopedias came with Microsoft's Encarta. And Encarta was very short-lived because now we have Wikipedia. And that's essentially that sort of trajectory is a constellation which had logistical issues because printing the entire Encyclopedia Britannica was very expensive to a pyramid because, in fact, the Encyclopedia Britannica ended up in more recent years becoming kind of a pyramid setup. It became, it was owned by Sears Roebuck and everybody was, there was a big army of salespeople and very top down. And then it became an even worse pyramid being sold as part of Microsoft. And then the entire rug was swept out from underneath it and it became a true constellation. Wikipedia is a true constellation. Well, so then he challenges himself. He says, Barzin says, well, it's not profit driven. Does that mean this has to be nonprofit? No, because Visa is a constellation. This was absolutely fascinating. I had no real conceptualization of what Visa cards are. This guy named DeHawk got all of the banks, including Bank of America, to participate in a constellation system that cannot be taken away, cannot be sold to someone else, and is instead owned in concert with competitors. Does it infuriate me we never spoke of this kind of cooperation in business school? Hell yes, it does. Visa is self-organizing without the centralized power and encourages competition and cooperation. And it is unbelievably robust, so robust that it is unchallengeable. There's no way to take it away. And it has ended up becoming part of our debit cards as well. Barzin talks about the development of this constellation mindset. Peter Drucker is a very famous uh, Wall Street guy, and he was named as uh, some several years ago as the guru. Like someone went out and asked all these financial famous financial people, "Who is your guru?" And it was always Peter Drucker by a mile. But then they asked Peter Drucker, "Who is your guru?" And it was Mary Parker Follett. She has been nearly erased by history, and yet she underlies most of our humanistic thinking, most of our progressive thinking of how business works, how commerce works, and how we can do better in those pursuits. She was in the precursor of Radcliffe College. It was like the Harvard Annex, I guess, and happened to be lucky enough to be mentored by William James, who was a very well-regarded, very famous Harvard professor. Her senior project was on the nature of power in the United States government. So she studied the 39 men who had ever held the Speaker of the House of Representatives position, right back to the first one, who was the guy with the idea of the constellation for the seal, Charles Thompson. Follett interviewed all living speakers, and she wanted to ask them all what makes leaders succeed, what makes them fail. It's amazing we've known this for so long, but we don't believe it. The most effective leaders do not 
depend on hierarchical power or persuasion, but a blend of techniques that involves both formal and informal power. They are able to create groups that generate power together to respond to the demands of the current situation and not feel like pawns. And this book, her first book, had a mass of glowing reviews, one of which was from a real up-and-comer, Theodore Roosevelt. This is like win more, win more in Harvard-style negotiation, that bad outcomes are when people acquiesce, when one or the other has victory, when they compromise and everybody feels bad, and the only good outcome now in Harvard-style negotiation, the only good outcome is win more, win more. The way that Follett puts it, I think, is way more nuanced and, quite frankly, useful and beautiful, which is integration. But I think it's the same concept. The good outcome in diplomacy, in negotiation, in any kind of group evolution is integration. When all members of the group make a new thing together, your individuality is not diminished as a result. It's enhanced. It's not a melting pot. It's not a salad. It's a constellation. So he also talks about the special relationship idea between the UK and the US and how Churchill came up with that. And that's kind of neat. There are these pieces where it's really important to put your energy in the places where you have like fruitful relationship building. He quotes this woman named Lynn Twist who went to the Amazon to work on deforestation issues. And when she met some of the indigenous people there, they told her if she was there to help, she could leave. They didn't want her. She was to go home. But just as she prepared herself to have to turn around and leave, this same indigenous tribe told her she was invited to stay on one condition if her liberation was bound up with theirs. In other words, reciprocal freedom. That's constellation thinking. So Barzin worked with Obama specifically to raise interest and campaign funds. And when he was working on that, Lynn Twist, the woman from the Amazon story, told him that money is like water. When it flows, it heals. When it's stagnant, it kills. Two, only ask people who want to use money for a cause greater than themselves. And three, ask everyone because everyone wants to help a cause greater than themselves. Really lovely. That first about water is basically true, but I think there's a stronger metaphor that I've used for years, which is blood. Money isn't so. No, I don't think the. I don't think stagnant water, healing water, killing water. That doesn't work for me. However, money needs to flow. Money is like blood in a system, and when it clots, the economy, the body, the body politic, our collective life together, is in peril. That's how we stroke out and die. And I would suggest that we are currently in a moment like that. We, we do not have free flow of money. Goes through, talks about the ins and outs of the Obama campaign. Very interesting stuff about low dollar donors and how incredibly successful they were using low dollar do- donors. And I remember this at the time, these fundraisers where regular people could give 50 bucks and attend and meet the candidate. That's not how traditional politics works. And unfortunately, and and this really feels sort of, hmm, I don't know whether it's sad or if it's just like, 
All, all I can think of is whenever summer turns to fall, there's a couple of very cold days at the end of summer, and then it gets warm again for a little bit, and then it gets cold for real. And that happens every season. Most clearly when summer is going into fall, and then when winter is going into spring, there come some incredibly warm, beautiful days in late March or April, and then it gets unbelievably cold. You might have a massive snowstorm, and then it's truly spring again. This is what it feels like with politics right now, that we had this really exciting power-shared constellation peak from just before 2008 and around 2008, and Barzin's pretty clear about this, that they changed everything back around out of fear to that hierarchical authoritarian style, everybody does it this way kind of fundraising. And it's really a shame. But back to this, he quotes Jane Jacobs, who actually worked with Mary Parker Follett. She was a an urban organizer in New York City, and she fought against Robert Moses. And that's a great story in its own, because Robert Moses was a deeply problematic racist, very top-down. He was a gatekeeper for New York City. He did all these vile, sneaky development projects like making overpasses too low for public transportation so it would keep poor people, read that as non-white people, out of the beaches. Everything was top-down, but Jane Jacobs fought against that and fought for this constellation mindset. She says, I love this quote, to seek the causes of poverty is to enter an intellectual dead end because poverty has no causes. Only prosperity has causes. Heat has causes. Cold is what's left when those processes are gone. Just so the great cold of poverty and economic stagnation is merely the absence of economic development. It can only be overcome if the relevant economic processes are in motion. And this can only be done with constellations. And I have to say, we are so utterly ready and overdue for constellations. And top-down authoritarians know it. And I think they are upset about it. I think that's a lot of the weird political stuff that's been happening in recent years. One of the things I've thought of and talked to a lot of people about before is the idea that what's happening right now is the old power dynamic in an extinction burst, which is the incredible self and other destructiveness when a paradigm that worked for a small group of people, for example, white supremacists or patriarchy, when that is clear, oh, apartheid, when that is clearly finished, there's a danger for a huge amount of self-destruction and destruction of everything around. And we see it does it's not necessary. It's just incredibly hard for um, people with power to be able to understand how to share that power. And they get almost infantilely upset, but they're grown people and they have access to weapons and other kinds of destructive tools. So anyway, not to get too far off on that, the ambassador stories that he tells are really cool. He talks about how everything did ultimately change with Obama. We had like two years of real momentum. And then 
the 2012, so 2008 was all about we, but the 2012 election was I got this. 2008 was yes, we can. 2012 was chill out. And there are massive tonal changes. And it was ineffective. He, you know, Obama won that second one, but had actually lost the real support that he needed and was now pretty much hogtied by the Republicans for certainly four, possibly, I would even say six years of his presidency. And this tonal change is either a reflection of that or a cause of that. I would love to see Democrats learn some of these lessons now. I'd love to see them learn it 12 years ago, but I would love to see them learn it now, if not. So as ambassador to London or to the UK in particular, Barzin would run these workshops all over the place. Just these very simple workshops. For example, he ran them with his own staff. He said, here's some drawing paper. Feel free to do this as an art project. What's frustrating to you here? And pretty much all of them said bureaucracy. And what's inspirational? And pretty much all of them said community. But then it turns out that those are the same thing. We are the bureaucracy and we are the community. We do this to ourselves. So he then started looking at ways to rectify that, to change that, to make that easier for people. And, and where there had been a protocol office, which gate kept everything with this idea that they were making things special and exclusive, but the exclusiveness ended up, everyone ended up with imposter syndrome and it encouraged everybody to act like jerks. So he replaced that with the office of network engagement, which he called the only need everybody or the one office. And that was meant and, and did in fact succeed in encouraging everybody to be their whole selves engaged at work to create and maintain and complete the circuit. So at these workshops, he would ask these things of the kids, of, of kids in high school. What do you think? What, what are you afraid of? What are you hopeful about? What frustrates you? What inspires you? And then he would say, you are the next generation of politicians. You are the leaders of the future. And these kids really hadn't thought about that before, except for the ones in exclusive private schools who were all like, yes, I know, my father is an MP. And that was a really interesting thing, too, like dealing with some of those kids versus trying to get the other kids to understand they are the future. They are the voice that we have. He also develops this concept of also, and I guess this is really what underlies all of these workshops. Ask other people about their hopes and fears. Link them to our own. Serve the relationship between us. Open ourselves up. The pyramid mindset wants to think that it is the only version of order that exists. And people with constellation mindset would do well to codify and document so that the results don't get hijacked and isolated by the pyramid hierarchical mindset, which is always a danger. Hierarchy, because it's power and because people want to have and keep power over others, it always runs the danger of hijacking. I actually think it's kind of a, I don't know that you have to be mm, mentally healthy necessarily or like your optimal self 
to have the constellation mindset, but I would say the hierarchical one is one that people fall into, I think, a lot as a result of trauma because it's so comforting to have power over others as a response to a time when we ourselves were powerless. The constellation mindset has to be one that is put in place and then monitored and fostered all the time so that you don't end up with that kind of hijack. NPR analyzed 250 commencement speeches, and they found five phrases that were in most of them, if not all of them. Change the world. Listen to your inner voice. Work hard. Don't give up. Embrace failure. And Barzin notices they are all very lonely proposals and changes them to change your mindset instead of change the world, share your inner voice instead of listen to your inner voice, work through hard things together instead of just work hard, give up power to make more instead of don't give up, and embrace uncertainty instead of embrace failure. And everything on that list could be used effectively in raising toddlers through CEO level people. All of them are applicable. I mean, I could sit there and run this list, change your mindset, share your inner voice, work through hard things together, give up power to make more and embrace uncertainty. I could easily run that through a preschool class as I could a leadership in business class which I just think is lovely, very distilled, very constellation, very shared power. It is really interesting to watch this country begin to move away from a colonizer, sure, but ownership, and by ownership, I mean ownership of others. We have a lot of legacies as a slave society, and even here in the Northeast, which prides itself on being part of the Union in the Civil War, on being abolitionist, on the Underground Railroad, and all those kinds of things, we as a nation have been complicit, and we can we still have a lot of that mindset. We still have a lot of it, and it's part of our founding documents. This idea that power has to be retained and inflicted on the powerless. Barzin points out that the future of work is one in which the constellation mindset is an advantage. Any, If you can imagine a job in which uncertainty can be eliminated, that's a job that will be eliminated. Who will be hired? Those who can fruitfully embrace uncertainty and follow and connect branches wherever they may lead. That's bad news for accountants, except for ones who are good at the relational part of accountancy, the ones who maybe want to do forensic accounting or, or find that kind of creative side. And I know that sounds funny, but the creative side of accounting, 
bad news for people who have been praised for their schoolwork when really what they were being was compliant, but good news for people who want to understand better the complexities of interpersonal relationships. And he runs workshops now in the U.S. for young people to understand what the world's going to look like for them in the future through this constellation mindset. One of the neat stories in this book is when Barzin met the U.K. comedian Jimmy Carr, and he said, jokes are funny things. They're strange things. If you play a song and no one likes it, it's still a song. If you write a play and everyone walks out, it's still a play. But if you tell a joke and no one laughs, it's just a sentence. And Barzin comes to this conclusion that the joke isn't just the delivery of the word. Diplomacy isn't just the delivery of diplomacy. Negotiation isn't just the sitting down of negotiation. All these relational things aren't just the thing itself. It's the connection. It's the completed circuit. You do your part. The other person does their part, and together, something new is created. And in the acknowledgments, Barzin thanks Mary Parker Follett and Jane Jacobs, which is nice, and I really love that he brought them out of... Jane Jacobs has been known for a long time, but Mary Parker Follett was really in the shadows. I'm so glad he brought that out, and I've actually bought a few of her books to read over the next couple weeks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about career, community, and creativity. Next up, part one of my talk with Dave Milgram. With me today is David Milgram, author, illustrator, and cartoonist. Thanks for being here today, David. Sure, Janet. Thanks for asking. So the show is about career, community, and creativity, not necessarily in that order. And you can start with whatever you want to talk about first, but it is very interesting that you are a working cartoonist. <laughs> I... Yeah, working cartoonists. I guess, you know, if you consider the illustrations for the books that I do as cartoons, then yeah. Mm. Uh, a lot of the cartooning I'm doing, I'm posting on social media and it's, I, I suppose that there's, it's, even that is a little bit work because I post on Medium and they do pay a little bit depending on how many people they actually measure it by how much time people spend with the articles that I put up. So, okay. A little bit. Yeah. So the cartooning is um, kind of the blogging piece and the social media piece, but the illustrating it's funny because visually I just kind of equated them, but of course, no, they're two different activities for you. 
Yeah, you know, my style of illustration, which I use in children's books mostly, although a couple of humor books, is comic or cartoon style. So you're not wrong to think of it that way. Okay. I guess I'm splitting hairs. Cartooning is a, a little different, uh, a little bit of a different animal for me. My, you know, my original interest was to do a comic strip and comic strips oh. are a newspaper thing and newspapers are a thing of yesterday. So it's, that's a field that really isn't viable anymore. There are people still doing it. Usually people who have been doing it, but the people starting into it now, I don't think there's much of a prospect for making a living at it. Mm. That's so sad. I mean, I, yeah, that's comic strips are like a, fundamental piece of my first reading and and just oh, totally. joy for years and years and years and there's been totally no there's been no great replacement for it yet maybe i'll put yet in the hopes that we'll find yeah something. there are web comics you know that's sort of a thing where people are doing cartooning online but it's it's first of all i'm not quite sure how you monetize that people mm. who have enough of a following can produce some products or books or things like that. You know, that is my thought is to get enough of a following that I can take it to a publisher who publishers now want me to bring not only the book, but the audience. Yeah. So uh, if I have enough people that are showing an interest, then I can do something with that. So that's really interesting because I would have thought that since you have, like, you have a lot of books that have done really well, that's not considered enough of an, like, you'd have to start back at square one for publishers? It, it's sort of a different audience because the that's, like, the kids' book thing is really uh, not the people who are going to buy uh humor book necessarily there's some crossover in the parents and at this point i'm so old that a lot of the people who's who read my books are old enough now to buy things you know if right. they would think of it you know that's right. another question but yeah they want to see an active social media following you know i questioned the the validity of looking at it that way mm. you know i don't know how many you know, a lot of people may have twenty five thousand followers or two hundred thousand followers and whether that translates into book sales i don't know but it's certainly perceived as less of a risk for the editors yeah and the publishers yeah yeah, yeah. it's much more businessy than i even the the whole subject is a drag yeah. yeah. But at, at the heart of it is still a real thing, which is trying to reach people with my work and my message. Right. And the gatekeepers, you know, are one part of that, but still there is the fundamental problem or challenge of putting stuff into the world and finding people that are interested it's really interesting because there's a real tension between the 
sort of traditional way, the old way, which was a massive gatekeeping where everyone is trying to, you know, hustle for the four open positions, which are actually three to one open position because people who's, you know, like Beetle Bailey stayed on long after it was ever funny. So these positions, like <laughs> fewer and fewer and fewer open spots. And yet you've, and it feels like a lot about the internet and technology has democratized this, but it almost feels this tension of like, well, how can we gatekeep now? Like, what's a new way to gatekeep? Make it so yeah. hard. It, it, in a way, I think it's probably better now mm. in, in the way you're describing. In the past, it was definitely a matter of appealing to those gatekeepers. And then once you made it through that gate, it was a little bit more guaranteed what, what might happen, even in books too, because you know the outlets there were publishers who would send out review copies through the mail to right. people that worked at magazines and newspapers. And they are the, maybe the second step of the gatekeeping, but if they you know, start pu putting out positive reviews, then they'll tend to find a market. Right. There was a little bit of, of democracy, or so to speak, in that, in that, in the sense that books would stay around longer. So, uh, in the days of independent bookstores, one, you know, a few bookstores kept, took the book and sold it. And even if others didn't, if they had good sales with it, the salespeople would then recommend the book to other stores right. say, Oh, you know, people are having success with this. Now, if you, if when a book's published, if you don't have success within six months, the book's gone. Right. You know, it's really like if you're, if you don't have success by the pub date, it's pretty tough to get any traction afterward because there's just too much material. Right. Right. Uh, so this way, at least... Just going to say, I remember a humorous Dave Barry starting a band called The Rock Bottom Remainders. Yeah. From those books <laughs> that him. didn't make it. Yeah. What were you going to say? This way, what? This way, there is the chance of just reaching people directly. Yeah. It's a whole new puzzle and something you have to take seriously as an artist now. Yeah. It's, it's not something you could just leave to the other people, which is what I've done up until now how long ago did you start doing the like have has it been has your cartooning been at the same time as your illustrating or did you sort of have a career as an illustrator and move into cartooning the the cartooning was the my first interest mm. and uh, i actually specifically remember reading a biography of charles schultz when i was 19 and thinking oh this could be a career. And uh, I think shortly after that, I ended up going to art school mm. and I got an internship in uh, United Media. Oh, uh, wow. Which has U United Feature Syndicate, which yeah. is Peanuts and Garfield. Yeah. And, and was, you know, very much thinking in terms of a, a comic strip. And then I went to work as in graphic design and started illustrating, which was in my comic style, but but not 
doing the whole thing. Like I, like I was illustrating other people's texts right. and, and did mostly magazines, some promotion stuff, tiny bit of advertising. And then I took a children's book writing workshop, which was the other way to do writing and art together. That, that was my interest was combining writing and art. So it was either comics or this sort of vaguely unknown feel to me of children's books. Mm. And in that workshop, I wrote a story. It was actually just, a, it met three times and it was really for illustrators, but we could either write our own manuscript or we could use some uh, traditional, you know, uh, rights free story like an Aesop fable or something like oh, that. Oh, got it. Yeah. And yeah. And I, I was interested in the writing. So I wrote, I think on Friday afternoon, I wrote a story, brought it into the class on Saturday. And on the way out, the teacher stopped me and said, they thought that I could sell what I had done, which was, you know, kind of shocking. Yeah. Really? <laughs> After five years of toting my portfolio around in New York, <laughs> which is, you know, the people, magazines and publishers have uh, like open days where you can drop off a portfolio. Nobody asks for it. You just go there, drop your portfolio off and go back the next day. And half the time they've never even looked at it. Yeah. You know, you'd start like all of our uh, 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 scrambling illustrators would like note where the zippers were or how many promos were in the thing. And, you know, you could kind of tell that thing had not even been looked at and come on kid, it, you know, we're, just we're such gonna make an, you a star <laughs> yeah <laughs> such an uphill slog so i on she asked me to rewrite the ending and said it would be a couple of weeks and she'd put me in touch with some friends of hers in the industry on tuesday i ended up in the uh editor-in-chief's office at Bloomsbury, I think it was. Oh, wow. From a contact through. So it's like, like, I didn't sell it to her and I didn't sell it to the other two people she knew, but I ended up selling it within a few months and kind of got launched into this direction of kids' books, which was just simply the path of less resistance. That's the path of ease as well, right? You know, you have yeah. to go, you yeah. have to start. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Is this right it's during just, the is this during the Harry Potter years for Bloomsbury too? I I think it was pre that. It mm. was that my first book was published in 94, I think. All right. So yeah, so what happened so what happened then? Yeah, I went to Bloomsbury. I went to a couple other places and then I happened to have been contacted by somebody from Random House. Oh. to illustrate a book. So I contacted her and I, she ended up buying the book and it's called Why Benny Barks. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, I know what I was going to say. When I first went to that workshop where I wrote this story, the one of the first things that they discussed was the age group for picture books which is only goes up to third grade, mm. really. You know, once kids get around eight or so, they want to read on their own. 
uh, they're not being read to as much generally. Right. So picture books are, are younger. My first thought was, oh, I don't want to work for kids that young. That's not where my head is. I'm, you know, like I'm thinking more like 12, 13, you know, something like, like those early uh, middle school years. And really adults was what I was originally set out for. But as you're saying, it's, you know, the ease of it just, just pulled me toward that. So now I've done over 35 books and am finally returning to my original passion of comics. This was an answer to a question you asked about three days ago. No, this is how, this (laughs) is how it happens. I mean, this is how your life happens. So it's gotta be how the conversation happens. So have you ever thought of doing illustrated novels? Cause those kind of came of age at the same time. Comic books. Yeah, totally. It's definitely interesting. I I've halfway through a, a graphic novel. novel, Yeah. It's, it's like probably a, a, middle school or maybe middle grade middle grade is like the end of elementary school right it's it's such a big undertaking that every once in a while when I get time I'll break it out and I'll and I'll think wow this is really hard yeah and I and I'll work on it a little bit and I you know I still want to go back and and do it I think it's a really fun place to stretch out in this field. And I think it would actually be very satisfying for me. Yeah. Because the thing that came to mind was Tintin from the Belgium. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Those are all. Were you a fan of those? Oh yeah. I was, a, I was, I was an odd fan because I was from this country, but my violin yeah. teacher's son had the complete collection in a closet and he was like high school senior or something. And I had to wait through my sister's lesson so he used to just toss me the books when I when I got bored and was sort of wandering around the house right. <laughs> waiting for my sister. And so I ended up reading all the Tintins and, and yeah. Astros and Obelix. And we don't have that kind of like that's that's oh, he was serialized in magazines. Right. So that's that's the end for that illustrator oh that's where that came from yeah so he serialized and serialized black and white in magazines ultimately started and he did it as a serial and then at the end of that he'd compile but it meant that somebody was on him every you know week or month saying let's get the next you know whatever page i should check those out i've seen them at the library they have a number of the books yeah yeah uh i loved them i still love them the style is called lean claire which is from Japanese prints, you know, those, uh, those ink uh-huh. prints that they do. So everything is sort of flat color, but black outline, which is, it's odd. It's very Belgian. It's very French. I mean, not that huh. they're the same thing, but you know, you go there and you go to a store and there's, you know, 50 different series from all different artists. And yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of neat. Huh. But nice. yeah, caught on there, didn't catch on here. But when I think about that, like when you were saying not a little older than that middle grade, a little older than fifth, sixth grade, yeah. those were all for th- that, for that next bunch up. Yeah. What kind of magazines? You, do you know, were they kids? He, yeah. So or? they were actually, they were, they were boys, Catholic magazines. Uh-huh. So they were specifically for, 
you know, adventure stories for boys starting in the 1920s. And, uh, and the, the, the age group that it was aimed at was, was maybe early side would be 11, but 11 to 15, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, yeah. it's a weird, it's a weird moment where that became a thing someone could do. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a, there's a great book. I'll find it for you and and I'll put it in the show notes too. But of a of a couple people who grew up with those books and then bought themselves plane tickets and followed all around because they all take place internationally. He's a boy reporter, and so they uh-huh. went they went to all the places that happen in all of the. There's like twenty eight or thirty books and. Yeah, uh-huh. they went to Tibet because there's tension in Tibet. They went to Japan because yeah. there's tension in Japan. Yeah, T- uh-huh. took photos of all his so reference. Fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the other thing I was thinking about, too, is how um, the adult comic book stuff kind of took off in that time. But it's all collaborative, right? Like, right, Neil Gaiman and Sandman, all those kinds of, you know, deeply psychological and <laughs> deep... But they all depend on like, you know, somebody being a novelist, somebody being like a Marvel style or DC style artist. Yeah, it's interesting. And then how, how, I don't know, those, those feel like closed shops to me, I guess. I might be wrong, but. I I don't know. I tell you, in ways I'm so out of it. Mm. There's, you sound far more knowledgeable about my field. (laughs) Oh God, no, that's just as a, I've run across a lot of things I've read. <laughs> I yeah. worked in the art and music department at Forbes Library at a very oh, impressionable okay. age, and it was like being an alcoholic uh, at a bar. I never uh, put books away. I read them. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. The the I wish that there was, you know, so many of the projects that I, I put together and I'll send to my agent who's a children's agent largely. And you know, she always wants to know what's the comp on it. What's a comparable book? So when she gives it, makes a pitch, oh. she can say, this is like, you know, the wimpy kid, or this is like, you know, Captain Underpants. Yeah. And it's just like, never like anything, right. what, what I've been doing. And I imagine maybe there's some of it out there. So I don't know, maybe I'm just kind of wandering around in the, you know, outside of the stadium those questions somebody actually was doing that i was at a meeting last night for something and someone was like what's the age group what's the age group and it kept coming back around to people who like to go to a party so like sometimes i feel like even though i'm kind of steeped in business stuff the question is wrong like that's just the wrong question what's it like it's like what it is yeah (laughs) you know i know it's i tell you it's again it's this sort of gatekeeper thing where you have even if the editor, I, I sent a project around that was, you know, again, un, not like anything. It was called Longing for Belonging. Mm. And I, a few of the editors really liked it, but they've got to go to acquisition meetings with their bosses, with marketing and sales people there and, and convince them that this book can sell. There's only one thing on their minds. Yeah. You know, it's, it's whether it'll sell. So it when it becomes complicated, it's it's tough. These sales people are in the stores or talking to buyers from from 
bookstores and you know major national chains like Barnes and Noble, yeah, and Amazon, and they they have, I, uh, you know, if they have thirty seconds to discuss one book, that's a lot. They have well, a lot of books. They don't have that much time. You know, it needs to be like this is a celebrity then, or right. this is a book like this or yeah. something, you know? I think the funniest thing about that as a concept for me is, you know, especially if we're talking children's books, 30 seconds, look at a page. Like this does, this is not war and peace where I have to tell you all the yeah. different people involved and how, it, you know, so it's kind of funny to apply that same sales thing as if this were you know game of thrones to someone <laughs> when they could just look at two pages and go oh i like it and move it on <laughs> yeah 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 i it there's a lot of business concerns i'm i'm actually far less interested in the business far more interested in the other aspects and in the other things that you're discussing yeah here yeah. the create the creativity and the community, yeah, the yeah, the talk career about stuff that. gets gets yeah, it, that gets so it really gets tied to business, and there's real practical concerns there. But I there's this other side. I was actually just having a conversation uh, with my therapist about the the difference between uh, when I'm working between wanting to do something that is quote successful that will, you know, kind of get me the response and I, uh, you know, uh, attention in a way that I want and, and the pure pleasure of creation. Mm. And I find them to be two different things. And I have spent a lot of time parsing them yeah. and thinking about what really drives me as a as a creator and i uh, and the 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 need that i think is very very real that we all have to be seen and to be found valuable useful and important yeah and and i think that the way most of us go about feeling important is doesn't work. I think that you could be, you know, Saturday night live breakout star and just never feel really feel what you need to feel because what it is, is it has, it's much closer to belonging than I think uh, mm. status or success. So, but in order to belong and, you let me know when I jump the tracks. No, here I love this. In order to belong, and I I use as my reference point the uh, environment of our evolutionary adaptation. Okay. The EEA, which is to say that you know we are still essentially hunter gatherers who have so rapidly created technology that we live in a world that's very unlike the one that we are evolutionarily optimized for mm. so i always use as a reference point you know what i imagine life was like in small in the small communities that we evolved to live in mm. and and how that then translates into today and the this issue of belonging was critical if you didn't belong 
yeah. in a tr in a tribal setting, you didn't survive. So, so in order to belong, you had to do kind of two things. One is put yourself aside in deference to the group, and the other was make a contribution. Right. So as long as you were making a contribution to the group and not being selfish, you were in. Mm. You know, you you did something. So we, I think, you know, flash forward to today, we're still running around trying to do this same thing. We want our work to be taken uh, seriously and we want to make a difference. You know, that's where we find our meaning and our purpose. So there's a part of me that wants to create comics or books or whatever, but I, and here's another area I'll come back to where I parse even further as to what it is that we're creating, but we want to create something that other people value. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have to even be a creative product project. You know, you can be sweeping up at the tire plant, you know, people need tires because we drive around in cars and we need someone to clean the plan and that is valuable important work and we have to we all have to know that we're valued by the people that we know mm -hmm. and if we're valued by people we don't know it doesn't matter it doesn't serve the sense of belonging mm. so so i'm always at war i have this internal war going on between uh, wanting to break through and be successful and simply wanting this far simpler sense of, of value and, and importance to, to actually just be making a contribution. Yeah. And it's hard. It gets hard to know when, when I'm crossed into a uh, megalomania or I, uh, you know, concede or, or whatever, you know, that's like the flip side of, of insecurity yeah. and worthlessness. Yeah. It's this sense that I'm fabulous, you know, it's, I, uh, so I'm always kind of checking that because I, uh, we're very prone to want to be big. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, some of this stuff has to do with where we attach and, you know, if we're sort of firmly attached to a healthy inner self, then we know what enough is. And if we're, tentatively attached to a damaged traumatized flailing inner self then we don't know what enough is and and back to books jeffrey bezos does not know what enough is <laughs> no i don't think anyone in it at the you know power positions knows i think that's why they're there they yeah. keep yeah thinking the next thing will be enough but yeah. it's not enough because they're in the they're go they're just simply on the wrong path they're on a path of status not belonging yeah yeah and it's and it's belonging you know how can they how can you even belong when you're jeff bezos everyone wants a piece of you yeah everyone's just waiting to slip a knife in your back no one has your back and the one place you did belong you trashed because your marriage is gone yeah I, I always say about jeffrey bezos if it was cats he wouldn't be on the front of forbes He'd be getting help from social services, but because it's money, yeah. he's on the front of the cover of Forbes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't really know him and, uh, no. you, you know, I can't, I, you know, some of True. the things I've heard make me concerned, but I, yeah, it's, we, we get off track, but, but I, you know, the thing that I recognize as being so damaging in, in people who are in power 
I see in myself. Yeah. And I've worked on it a lot, you know, and, and I think it, at its core, it's a, it's a sympathetic human drive. Mm. The, these are people that don't feel like they're enough. They don't yeah. just don't, you know, like me, I don't feel like I'm enough. Like you say, a tentative hold on to a damaged self. You know, I've held on to a damaged self like a piece of driftwood in, <laughs> in the ocean, you know, they keep afloat. And I think that we, we do, you know, as kids, yeah. some of these ways of thinking help saved us. Yes. But now they don't help us. I think that's one of the hardest parts. And this is all very familiar sort of territory for me too. But yeah, stuff that worked when you first like got hurt by it doesn't work years later. And it's very, it's a, it's a big process to update it because your childhood self tells you how to react now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything, everything from even difficulty reading, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of adults who are, you know, functionally illiterate because their seven-year-old self ran into problems. Nobody helped. And now yeah. they're like, I don't do that. I'm not good at it. I can't get past it. And it's like, that's a seven-year-old telling you that, which you wouldn't listen yeah. to. You know, if the seven-year-old told you they wanted to drive the car, you wouldn't listen to them. You'd just be like, yeah. absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's been great to talk with Dave today. Join us for part two next week. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to our website, working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine. And follow us on social media.